Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us again in another Ayn Rand uh, Tuesday discussion of our essays. Um, so today's essay is the anti-industrial revolution, uh, one of our key essays uh, that it's more present today than ever. Last week, we had Earth Day. And to talk about that, we have James. So James, could you guide us about the essential argument of this essay? This is one of Ayn Rand's most powerful essays. Um, there's no question about it. It is her philosophical identification of the roots of what we call the environmentalist or green movement uh, today in the West. In her time, it was the more common term was ecology or the ecological movement. This was written back in 1970. Um, and it appears in the New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution and Return of the Primitive, edited by Peter Schwartz. Uh, so it's been reprinted in more than one volume, and it is a powerful essay where Ayn Rand gets to, as I say, to the philosophical roots of the ecology movement, the environmentalist movement, and its historical development, where it came from. Uh, and she distinguishes important uh, matters uh, that people have about uh, pollution, sort of package deal that people have about uh, you know pollution, you know, clean air, litter, things like that, versus the actual philosophy and the policy demands of the what was then the ecology movement, and now what we call the environmentalist or green movements. Um, she identified them as anti, you know. I'll make a little detour here too. For readers that are already familiar with Ayn Rand's existing work at the time, uh, for example, her novel Atlas Shrugged in 1957, Ayn Rand had made some very bold uh, principled statements about the opposition to freedom and capitalism and individualism. She said it was rooted in the anti-mind, in the anti-technology, in, in, which is ultimately anti-man and anti-life. And at the time in 1957, when John Galt said these things, people were, this is an exaggeration. Miss Rand, how could you be, how could you mean that? You don't, people, are, the enemies of capitalism aren't, aren't like that at all. At this point, uh, thir some 13 years later, when the ecology movement is now starting to really get underway in the West, Ayn Rand could simply say in the most powerful way, I told you so. I told you that these were mystics and altruists justifying a quest for power ultimately, and that it was anti-civilization, anti-technology, anti-mind, anti-human, anti-life. So one of the things that has, um, th that it's most striking for me reading both this essay and the one that we read last time is the, that uh, what today's status quo wasn't status quo. So it, for me, it's actually a bit diff difficult to read these essays uh, as something that is a new and so something that's coming up and something that, that is fermenting at the beginning rather than something that, that is already established. And to for me to think that something different was happening, that people had a different mentality, it's very <laughs> difficult to, to think about. Them. Ayn Rand gets into the historical development of how this took place. Um, Leonard Peikoff in other speeches has talked about this as well. The fact of the matter is that socialism and communism had promised material prosperity. They had promised wealth for the masses, untold wealth, unlike anything capitalism could have ever produced. Uh, they were promised uh, technological advancement. They were promised uh, material progress. Uh, wealth for the ordinary person would now no longer be constricted to those of certain classes, but be available to the proletariat and so forth. 
Well, the promises of uh, Marxism and socialism proved a bust in the 20th century. They did not deliver the goods. Uh, communism, wherever it was tried, resulted in starvation, mass death, totalitarianism, even democratic socialism. For example, in England during the 1950s, 60s, and by the 70s, it was recognized to be a total bust. The truth is that socialism and communism claimed a, had a veneer, a patina, a surface uh, a presentation of uh, being pro-science, pro this world, uh, you know, pro-technology and technological progress. Well, that veneer was peeling off the walls by the middle of the 20th century. So the left had to find a new strategy in effect. And that new strategy was to say, once they had to sort of admit by implication that it was capitalism that delivered prosperity, capitalism that delivered the material goods for people uh, and not socialism, they had to take a new tack. And the new tack was prosperity is bad. Material progress is bad. All this material abundance that capitalism is giving you is indulgent, is destroying the environment, is going to kill us in the end, usually with catastrophic, unscientific, mystical, in effect, claims uh, that would happen uh, if technology was unrestricted. And that's what Ayn Rand puts her finger on here. Uh, the environmentalist movement is uh, basically about opposing, ending, or at least restricting, seriously restricting the development of technology as such, not just some technology that might be harmful, that we know would be harmful, that we shouldn't engage in, you know, setting off nuclear bombs willy-nilly. No, 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 no. Technology as such uh, was the enemy, and that was the enemy that the ecologists identified, and Ayn Rand said, that's what's wrong. Now, let us return a bit uh, to, to the beginning of the essay. Uh, so one of the uh, beginnings of the essay, the beginning of the essay, she talks about uh, the fictional story, um, about imagining what hap would happen in the next five years if this um, small uh, constraint in technology would be implemented. Could you guide us? What is Rand trying to tell us with this short fictional story? And do you think that there is a parallel into his life, uh, to oh, this story? Only more so, only, only many times more so. Uh, she takes us through the ordinary life that would uh, be the reality should the ecologists of her time get all their dreams come, have their dreams come true. Uh, you know, self-indulgent luxuries uh, that harm nature and that are unnecessary would be eliminated. Um, and she would take you through all the basics that technology. See, people don't really realize, they take for granted uh, what science and technology and capitalism have done for ordinary people's lives. Um, and she takes us through uh, in grim detail what would happen should uh, the environmentalists get their dream and say private automobiles banned, for example, and people having to use mass transit or restrictions on uh, technology, say metal technology, and what that would happen, uh, what that would have. By the 1960s, human life was made so much better by capitalism. Just think of the electric toaster, just think of the blending machine or the coffee percolator. They did not have, Ayn Rand did not have in her time, home computers, uh, smartphones, microwave ovens. Air fryers. Uh, 
exactly all the we've got all so many more uh, gadgets produced by profit-seeking capitalists in the last 50 years that it's only more so but what she takes us through is a, as only a brilliant fiction writer can and if i had the reading skills of robert naser i'd i'd read that section out loud right now all i can do is urge people to read this essay it is only a brilliant writer, indeed a brilliant fiction writer, could have composed this, but it is a realistic account of what the reality would be for average people should environmentalism get its dreams. That would mean a dramatic reduction in the quality of life. It would mean less time. It would mean more effort. All the time-saving devices, all the labor-saving devices add time, add life, add the capacity for some enjoyment in life, add the capacity for some extra creative work in life. All of that would be eliminated and we would be brought back to a state where people were living a more subsistence and a less secure and a less safe environment. Um, if you say the, today, what, today uh, most people could, cannot even conceive of what life is like before the Industrial Revolution, much less what life was like, say, 100, 150 years ago, when we were already well into the Industrial Revolution, they would not tolerate it if that reality, if that change in reality uh, actually happened. And that's what she's trying to do, make it a vivid, concretize the implications of an abstract idea. As Ayn Rand has pointed out many, many times, it is exactly philosophy that has prevented us epistemologically from drawing out those consequences and see what people really mean when they state an abstract idea about mankind uh, being a cancer on this planet or technology being an evil, etc. There are many notions of environmentalism that Ayn Rand knocks down powerfully, one right after the other. These uh, uh, environmentalists are complete mystics. Their view is uh, uh, that nature in its current status quo is sacred, is sacrosanct. We can't let a single species go extinct. Uh, because uh, ecology is in a perfect equilibrium, a balance, an ecosystem that cannot be changed. Well, that, of course, is completely unscientific. Dinosaurs, when in fact, the vast majority of living species that have ever been on this planet went extinct long before human beings ever came around. Uh, the the, the uh, ecosystem, uh, I put that in quotes, is constantly changing. It's a dynamic. The idea that somehow to freeze nature in its current state and that we can't let any subspecies of insect or any subspecies of, of lizard go out, uh, become extinct, is part of this religion. As if nature in itself is sacred and by nature they mean everything except human beings or more precisely everything except the human mind just like medievals believed that the human mind was something supernatural some quality of ours that belonged to some other dimension so the modern environmentalists regard it as unnatural as something that doesn't belong to nature the human mind, the rational capacity, our capacity to change the environment by means of our rational thought, i.e. our technology. And that is how humans survive. Reason is our means of knowing the world beyond the perceptual. It is our basic means of survival. Physically, we are relatively weak as a species. We wouldn't stand a chance against sharks and bears and so forth, out in nature, and lions out in nature. What we need is our mind. And it is by using our mind to improve life on earth, i.e. technology, that is our means of survival. 
So Ayn Rand shatters basic ideas about what the environmentalists are, are predicating this on, basically a mystic notion that nature in its current status quo is somehow sacred and cannot be changed, and that human beings and the human reason is unnatural, doesn't belong to and can't be identified. And get this, that it, it, we, that it would be wrong to identify it in effect. Human nature is the one animal species nature that cannot be identified. To identify that properly would be the end of the game. The end of the game for socialists and clearly the end of the game for environmentalists. Now, um, she says that American people aren't um, protesting against ecologists at that time because of three fundamental things. She says because they take uh, technology for granted because um, they are very benevolent and don't believe in the nature of evil, and because um, education isn't allowing them to think in principles. Do you think that these factors have changed since 1970? To some degree, but mostly not. People ever more than ever take technology for granted. They think it will always be here. They think that civilization, that civilization is not fragile and that civilizations cannot collapse. They think that the progress is, you know, in one sense, just an inevitable thing and we can never really go backwards. So they take it for granted and they take it for granted that it'll always be here. And more than that, as you say, the second point, maybe one of the most important points here, people don't really believe it when people say, environmentalists say that they oppose humanity as such. You know, I'm so, how many documentaries, nature documentaries have I seen where the timber wolf's only enemy is mankind and man, the evils that mankind poses to the timber wolf, uh, you know, over and over and over, <coughs> right? Uh, that's the, that's the absolute norm. Um, so people do uh, not hear it when they're actually being told that humans are the bad guys. They really don't hear it when an environmentalist, and they have more than one leading environmentalist over the last few decades has hoped that a horrible disease or cancer would wipe out most of the human species. That's what many environmentalists have actually opined. Uh, they are anti-human, but most Americans, most people in the West generally are far too benevolent to take them at their word and to listen to exactly what they're saying. They just don't believe what they're hearing. They're just too Dagny Taggart-like in their benevolence to actually hear what's being said. And the third point is maybe the single most important point. Our education system has, our philosophy is the real root here, has trained us not to think in fundamentals, which Ayn Rand gives us a great example of here in terms of thinking in fundamentals about environmentalism, teaches us not to how to think in fundamentals so we can understand the concrete implications of abstract ideas. And that's what our fictional story uh, what the hell of life would be like if the environmentalists got their dreams is for, to help the reader concretize that reality, how much their life depends on it, how much human survival depends upon technology, human survival as such depends upon technology. Um, related to this, um, Rand predicted that maybe the, the movement, the environmentalist movement had outsmarted this time. Um, that, they, that the movement could maybe be defeated by the common sense of Americans. Do you think uh, that the movement per se was defeated to some extent or was her prediction uh, wrong? Um, 
Well, it's still the prediction I'm hoping for. To some extent, it's true. It's the thing that what the hope that she had is precisely what is held, at least in my country, the United States, the extreme environmentalists at bay. The there's with a with a Democrat uh, president and Democrats controlling both houses of Congress, we're they're still unable to pass their Green New Deal, for example, just last year in Congress, which would have made, meant sweeping uh, uh, proposals against fossil fuels and other other extreme green uh, proposals. Um, and what is holding it at bay, I think, is exactly that innocence on the part of the American people that she was hoping for. And this realization, uh, see, not a lot of people, when you take polls in the United States, put global warming, for example, high up on the list. It's pretty far down on the list in a lot of most of the polls. Things like the economy and crime still come before way before global warming in the minds of Americans. And so that is for the last 50 years, that is exactly what has held it at bay to the extent it's been held at bay. But unfortunately, I don't think Ayn Rand's full prediction or hope it wasn't a prediction so much as her hope that it, the American people's common sense would see past this quickly. They didn't see past it quickly because of the package deals she identifies that the environmentalists have presented us with, that pointing to the you know litter on the streets or the smog in Los Angeles as sort of the examples, and that's why technology is evil and must be stopped or restricted as such, instead of realizing that those are specific property rights issues technological problems by and large, uh, specific technological problems by and large that can be overcome. So that package deal that environmentalism presents is still sort of there. The American people um, are lovers of their beautiful country in particular. I think um, uh, it is a particular characteristic of Americans to love nature because it is North America's beautiful continent, and so much of it is still wild and, and natural. Uh, we love the beauty of nature. And so they built that into the package deal as if humans are out to destroy and would destroy nature and its beauty, whatever the value of that beauty is to human beings. And so that package deal that she talked about is still in operation. But that hope that she had is actually what is held to the extent that we've held environmental extremism in the United States at bay has held it at bay. Now, you've already mentioned this, um, but I want to make a bit of emphasis uh, uh, on that. And maybe I could um, maybe follow this with a um, uh, devil's advocate question, but what is the package deal of the environmentalist movement? Well, it's just that. It's to combine the actual physical uh, uh, effects that sometimes occur from technology uh, that can be harmful, we may not even anticipate them. And they could, we could learn later on that there's something harmful to something, or we could, uh, there's, as I say, the simple matter of litter on the streets. Um, uh, and, you know, there's the wider issue of where that actually comes from, where the problems are actually originating, uh, which we can get into. But the package deal is nature is beautiful. We all love beautiful trees and mountains and right we we the, the the beauty of nature is a given the fact that people don't want their streets uh, littered is a given the fact that they want clean water to drink and clean air to breathe in their cities that's all true and those are obvious givens but under Ayn Rand's legal system of course physical harm to you your person physical harm to your property would be actionable under law that is to say if someone pumps toxic fumes into the air 
and it's coming over onto your, your land or you're walking down the street and getting it, you, your rights, according to Ayn Rand, are being violated. And it is perfectly appropriate to have laws that are designed to protect physical harm from other people and the byproducts of their action. They've got to pay for that or stop it. Um, so Ayn Rand didn't have a problem with uh, property rights and rights to physical safety being uh, a part of the law. In fact, common law with riparian rights, rights to rivers, for example, had already worked out well-established property rights ideas in these that could have been the basis for uh, do, uh, effectively dealing with the physical harm and the physical problems and the physical pollution that was happening mostly on a local level uh, and uh, mostly in specific areas, um, not these catastrophes. And that's the distinction here. The other side of this package deal that they try to sneak in here are these, and they tend to be absolutely unscientific. And even in Ayn Rand's day, mind you, back before any of these global, they were predicting apocalypse, global apocalypse. Ayn Rand mentions in this, one side says it'll be a new ice age, one side says it'll be a, a, a global warming a greenhouse effect. But in any case, it'll be catastrophic because of what human, humans are doing or how many different environmentalist catastrophes over the last 50 years have we been subject to. Overpopulation. By the year, I was told in the early 1970s in my public school classroom that by the turn of the 21st century, overpopulation itself would become such a problem that starvation would be much, much greater. Vast numbers of people would be dying throughout the world. It was just a given, given, given overpopulation. During the course of my lifetime, I was told there would be a, a hole in the ozone and that would cause uh, increased cancer deaths. We were told that uh, industrial pollutants were causing a uh, cancer epidemic in industrialized Western countries, which turned out to be factually false, just factually false. Um, in fact, it's in the less developed countries where you'll often have higher cancer incidence rates, not to mention, of course, the medical care that would go with it. But catastrophe, I don't know if you've ever heard of the old, it's now a 50-year-old film, but back in the early 70s, uh, uh, the famous actors uh, Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson made a science fiction dystopia called Soylent Green, where it predicted that in 50 years, uh, people would be re reduced to cannibalism and the whole world would be so overpopulated so polluted that people would be dying left and right and we would be reduced to cannibalism and stepping over other bodies trying to sleep in public streets in a toxic environment that no one could live. So by now we should be living in soil and green. But each and every one of these ridiculous, catastrophic, apocalyptic predictions has been a bust. But notice it doesn't matter the substance of it. They need a catastrophic global thing to justify big government action. It can't be some local problem that technology can solve or that some some updating of our property rights laws could solve the physical problem behind. No, 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 no. It's technology as such that's the bad guy. It's technology as such that must be eliminated. I mean, I remember arguments with hippie environmentalists that I had back in the 70s. Literally, they would say any technology beyond a gate latch is evil. Any technology beyond a gate latch is evil. I've had those arguments with people. And they believe that if you go beyond that, you are tempting fate, going against, uh, see, it's a mysticism. It's a, it's a mysticism that demands sacrificial altruism. But those, of course, are just the highfalutin of philosophical justifications and rationalizations given for their collectivist power lust. 
And so they need some catastrophe to have some big government solution that would take over all industry. See, if the, if the Reds couldn't do it by demanding sacrifice and inducing guilt about the poor and the, and the underprivileged, then the Greens, who have taken over from the Reds, are demanding sacrifice on the part of moss, bracken, and insects. Still induce guilt. Let me go through my devil's advocate question, but let me first go through the uh, super chats. And before I read them, let me tell you that uh, we have launched a new emoji, that of James. Uh, maybe you know a bit more about that, James. Is, I is do. We, we have a wonderful new uh, uh, benefit for subscribers, for paid subscribers to uh, the Ayn Rand Center UK. Uh, some of the figures who regularly appear are now getting emojis, and my emoji is being presented today. So if you have any interest in my emoji, it is there for you. If you And all you have to do is, when you see this on YouTube, not only hit subscribe, but then you'll have a join button. Hit join. And for a modest monthly amount, uh, and we'll do the conversion, whatever whatever currency you use, you will get all kinds of benefits. Certain programs we have that are available, for example, we do seminars on Leonard Peikoff's courses and books on Sundays. We're planning, Rosie Ginsburg is full of ideas. We're planning all kinds of other special perks, but this is one of our first ones, emojis. So if you like this kind of programming, do hit subscribe, hit like, Become a paid subscriber because all kinds of great material is coming. And one of the first things you'll get is an emoji of my beautiful face. <laughs> um, so this, the first super chat is Jonathan Huenix. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Then Jeff Bannister um, with Canadian Money. And also Robert Naser uh, saying, looking forward to Alex Epstein's uh, next book. Oh, indeed. You know, the Ayn Rand Institute has one of the issues that they have covered in great detail here, and they have all kinds of marvelous material. I would urge people first to read this essay, and if they agree with Ayn Rand's basic point here, go check out the material that the Ayn Rand Institute has on environmentalism. They've done recently some additional work on that, but they have an archive on this material going way back. And of course, there is the amazing Alex Epstein, who makes a moral case for fossil fuels, a real hero who's been grossly unfairly attacked in the media in my country because he is gaining a voice in under in educating people on the pro-life, pro-human, pro-health uh, aspects, the morality of fossil fuels, as opposed to its immorality from some uh, Greta Thunberg emotionalist. Yes, I'm looking forward to his new arguments because I understand that he's also explaining a lot of the things that we're going through in further detail, and he's putting a lot of epistemology, if I think, on his analysis, which is quite He does these wonderful series on the catastrophizing predictions from 40, 50 years ago. We'll be, you know, the Paul Ehrlich was telling us we'd run out of basic resources by the turn of the 21st century. And now, well into the 21st century, it turns out that we have more of those resources even untapped in the earth than he was even aware of. So as technology increases, our ability to access, our ability to find resources has increased. So far from running out of resources, we now have way more resources than we ever knew existed back in those times when they were predicting these catastrophes. But whether it's ozone or overpopulation or running out of resources, notice it doesn't matter what the catastrophe is. And notice it doesn't matter what the solution is. For example, if you were opposed to fossil fuels, you'd think that these people would be embracing nuclear power. 
it doesn't release any uh, carbon gases, any greenhouse gases. Uh, it, per watt of energy, it produces, you know, has fewer deaths, fewer deaths in any in, uh, energy industry per watt of energy produced. It is the safe, in that sense, it's the safest form of energy that we've yet developed. So you'd think that if the environmentalists were really in favor of protecting the environment, but still wanted humans to have energy of some kind, they might embrace things like, say, uh, clean natural gas or nuclear power, but they don't. See, what they, what they don't, what they oppose is civilization. What they oppose is technology. They think man is somehow some terrible corruption, some cancer on the planet, and that he, it's humanity that has to be kept back. Throttled. Yes. One of the interesting things of the piece that Rand is quoting is that uh, it apparently mentions a lot of the, uh, it has a lot of comments saying, uh, no, 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 don't you even think that technology is the answer to this? We believe that there are problems, but this won't be solvable through technology. Technology is a problem. That's very interesting. See, technology is the problem, not the answer. When, of course, when, when it does come to, to certain real provable physical harm issues, technology was the answer and is the answer. The air quality in Los Angeles today, and I know people will cite the federal law that was passed in the 1970s at about the time, I, shortly after Ayn Rand wrote, they passed a Clean Air Act under the Nixon administration in the 1970s, and the air around LA became cleaner. But it became cleaner by means of technological uh, means. It was a technological solution that cleaned up the smog in L.A., for example, and made it dramatically. I grew up in Los Angeles. I can tell you in the 1960s, some days were oppressive in the smog. Today, it's nothing like that. The answer was technological. Of course. I mean, think of it. They give me, they'll give you another example. Thomas Edison invents the light bulb. Light bulbs attract insects, moths. <laughs> Here we have a problem that comes up with a new technology that had never been thought of before. Well, geez, if we have light, electric lights on at night, we'll be attracting bugs. So what do we do? We develop insect repellents, insect things that uh, go and attract the bugs in, in other ways, screens so that we can be, protect our areas from insects. If the, if we, so you, we don't give up the electric light. That's a wonderful thing to have. That increases our life and our time at night and our ability to work in the dark and so forth. It saves lives. We're not going to give up electric light for that. What we're going to do is we're going to adapt with new technology if light bulbs attract insects, aren't we? So the tech, so it's not that a technology won't have byproducts. Of course it will. But the answer is not to end all technology, but either to find a, tech, a, new, a better technological solution or other technologies that can uh, help us from that byproduct. Now, my my um, devil's advocate question had to do a bit with the um, Pascal's wager. Like, imagine that someone came along with you, James, and said, "You know, I understand the the motives of these people. I understand that they uh, really don't have the pursuit of something that it's preserving hum um, nature." But at the end, maybe we will preserve nature, and nature is, is pretty. What what can we do? What what is so evil about uh, obeying this kind of uh, agenda or following well, this agenda? It's anti-human. It's anti-life. I mean, when you look at the uh, quality of life the technology has given people, when you look at the pop, Ayn Rand cites population statistics and life expectancy statistics. 
from the developing world to the developed world. And you can see directly the effect of life, the effect on human life of what we're talking about here. If you are in favor of human life, if you're in favor of real human progress and the perversity of these people calling themselves progressives, when they're the worst, they're worse, as Ayn Rand points out, they're worse than conservatives, they're conservationists who want to preserve nature's current status quo. To preserve the value of nature, we don't need to do that at all. It's as if environmentalists pretend, uh, there's another point that Ayn Rand makes, it's as if environmentalists pretend that human beings don't foster life on Earth. Other living species, plants, animals. We have gardens and farms and ranches and commercial forests where they grow trees specifically to make paper products and wood products. Well, what do they do as the trees are growing? They rent them out for recreational purposes, of course. You're not just gonna sit and waste it. People love forests. And so the idea that somehow the beauty of nature would be eradicated, it goes against the, the very idea of the free market. There would be a market there would be a market for food, for parks, for forests, for recreational activities, for beautiful places. All that would be in the free market values that would ha that would have a market. It, it, when you don't, when you take it out of the market system, when you make it a public commons, when you make it public territory, well, that's when everybody's going to throw their trash on it because it belongs to nobody. No one is responsible in particular. No one has a profit incentive about it. So that's where, forgive me, that's where people are going to do their public urination. Now, um, one of the crucial things of um, Ayn Rand is to, that she asks you to integrate your knowledge. So, can you integrate this essay uh, with what we discussed last week um, related to fascism coming on in the American and Western cultures? Oh, yeah. You remember what we were saying about rule by consensus in our last talk uh, and how ultimately democracy is a kind of fascism that stands above ideology? Now, this is the kind of thing that is just perfect for that, right? No one takes the environment the extreme environmentalists at their word they don't take them seriously that they hate mankind that they want humans to be wiped out they want to want us to go back to a primitive you know uh, uh you know pre-civilization mode of existence since no one takes that seriously and since that's the idea that they put out there can you imagine any compromise with that kind of a mentality if what we need is consensus and if we've got this package deal that's sort of pulling the wool over people's eyes getting people to engaged in a compromise, in a democratic compromise with these environmentalists, it can only be human life that suffers. It can only be human life that suffers. Technology really can't be restricted. That's another great point Ayn Rand makes in this article. You can't restrict technology any more than you can restrict the discoveries of the human mind. Um, you can obviously, I do not mean to say that we can't, look at, look at a gun. Can we have crimes like murder based on the gun? But the gun can also be used in self-defense by soldiers defending their country. It's not the gun that's evil. It's the use of that gun that's evil. And that, of course, can be regulated by law if it physically harms other people. If it physically harms other people. That's not what we're talking about here. If we're talking about here the evil of technology, of the cancer that man is on this planet, and uh, then, of course, we're talking about in effect, a policy that would result in the widespread destruction of human life.
There's no other way of looking at it. Uh, if fossil fuels were, be, were to be eliminated, it could only mean suffering and death of millions upon millions of humans across the globe. Um, now, we have a question of the Super Chat. Thank you very much, Retreat. Um, it's in Swedish Kronas. Um, and, and it's related to the plausible part of the, of the environmentalist um, uh, package deal. Uh, he asks about any thoughts on how laws should judge unavoidable but small negative side effects from extremely valuable technologies such as fossil fuels. I, uh, I gave a vague indication, but this, of course, belongs to the province of the philosophy of law and property rights, in my view. In my view, noise can constitute physical harm. In my view, obviously, toxic fumes can present physical harm. And those are property rights violations. Just as much as if I threw a rock through your win your house's window, <laughs> right? I'd be violate destroying your property, harming your property. Uh, the, again, we were given some good clues too with common law riparian rights. If I bought a piece of property along this alongside a, a part of a river, neither the headwaters nor the delta, but along in the middle somewhere, if I have a right to the water that was coming through when I bought that property. So someone upstream from me can't start dumping garbage in there to pollute the water that was normally coming through my property. So common law developed riparian rights. And I think that a similar thing could be done along the same lines with noise, gases, any, any other physical harm that a person can do to another human being or their property, because that should be the subject of law. That's the only valid area of law is when people are physically harming other people and unless you can show some physical damage or harm the law should stay the heck out of it the idea that people can't voluntarily bring order to their lives uh and avoid and take responsibility for their own safety is also a, a dictatorial motive behind all of this no question about it now i'm an economist and if anyone else has ever being in an economics course, you should make this, the, it, that person must be asking this kind of question. So here it goes. Uh, what do you think about the concept of externalities? Well, externalities is, my, in my view, a totally bogus concept from economics. I'm not an economist, but I did study enough university economics and I've read enough books to know that this is a concept invented in effect to give justification to government interventions in the market. An externality, as economists put it, is a cost or even a benefit that isn't captured necessarily by the price of the transaction. And so, for example, uh, there could be pollution. And it's, <laughs> when you go look up the examples, they're almost always examples of this kind along the lines of pollution and so forth. But in my view, those examples are exactly where government has failed or government has monopolized the area and created the problem in the first place. Government should have, for example, waterways should be private property. If waterways were private property, they would be clean. They wouldn't be some public commons that everyone, excuse me, could urinate in. Uh, it is when they become uh, public commons that these problems happen, that these problems almost inevitably happen. Um, and uh, private property is really the solution and the definition of property rights is the solution um, to specific physical problems. It either stops because it's causing harm to someone or they find a technological solution or they pay for it. An externality that wouldn't be in incorporated into the cost economically sound, as such sounds like some idea uh, uh, that can only be outside the free market. 
once people realize the effect of something, it will be taken into account in the price. That is to say, the minute I realize uh, that something has an effect that I didn't uh, anticipate from a transaction, they will start incorporating it into the transaction. The idea that dangers, risks, byproducts, that's why I use the example of, say, uh, the electric light of Thomas Edison and moths. If someone walked up to uh, Thomas Edison and said, well, you know, we got to get rid of the light bulb because you attract moths, that would be insane. But that's an externality, you see. And it does, seems to me absurd on the face of it to say that moths being attracted to an electric light bulb is an externality that the market cannot adjust for, accommodate for, that w there won't, people won't invent screens, insect repellents, uh, um, other ways to attract bugs away from your electric light, etc. cetera. Uh, externalities are internalized by the market once people are aware of them, if they're free to deal with them. The problem with pollution and why they think there are these gross externalities that can't be you know, taken into account by the market is because government has prevented it. Government has taken over, in effect. Government has taken over toxic waste management, uh, air pollution laws. If it's a public commons, then of course private solutions can't be can't come into uh, play. Yes, uh, about six, seven years ago, we all heard about this uh, banning of straws, plastic straws, because you know turtles uh, would die, and. One of the, the first things that I thought was, well, people don't throw straws to, into the sea. Like yeah. <laughs> rubbish disposal is uh, is something that uh, uh, governments have arrogated to themselves, right? Absolutely. You know, we always hear about these uh, the vast plastic, uh, uh, you know, and styrofoam uh, garbage. Uh, islands, masses that are floating about in our oceans, right? They say that the Pacific Ocean's got a vast one and that the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Oceans have vast clumps of plastic and other pollution uh, floating through them. But last I checked, most of the nations of the world, their waste disposal, their garbage management is all done through government agencies. Those are all government agencies. And instead of, and in many places, in my country, it's either by government agencies, state and local government agencies, or they'll give it to a private company, but they'll have the monopoly on waste management in that area, like we've got in my area. And therefore that gives the local government all the power to regulate the prices and so forth and what they do. And it's all done again by government permission giving that company some monopoly, which requires, of course, some special regulation to make sure they do it right, but it's really in government's hands. And I would also further note that the garbage, these plastic uh, garbage piles that are going out there in the ocean are the result, I understand it, last I checked, from an environmentalist site, mind you, of four nations on Earth. 50% or more come from China, Indonesia, Vietnam, and one other country that I can't recall right now, but four countries, four of the less developed countries, four countries where the government is totally in charge, oh, the Philippines, excuse me, the, uh, were, are the four countries that produce 50% of all the plastic and styrofoam garbage in the ocean. And the United States, mind you, is among the least offenders when it comes to pumping plastic into the ocean. Actually, more advanced capitalism, more advanced technology helps out dramatically. Also, in many places, the coastlines and the uh, waterways are publicly controlled. 
if someone owned, say, all the private beach land in California, there would be all these private property owners who would have a complaint when people were just dumping pollution into the ocean, wouldn't they? But they don't. They don't have a, a legal way to bring suit as individuals being harmed by it. And so, of course, government management, again, creates the oceans into this great public commons into which everyone can dump their plastic trash um, and do whatever they want. It's these public commons that becomes the hellhole, the, the pit of pollution. Oh, we're if you running care out. about nature, make it private property. Exactly. Um, that's also one of the economics. Yeah, I have a hard time too. believing. I have a hard time believing that, you know, uh, so take some famous, beautiful spots in America, uh, like uh, the Grand Canyon or uh, Yosemite Valley in the Sierra Nevada mountains, some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. I have a hard time believing that in a free market, the top value, the people who want it the most and would be willing to pay the most are those who appreciate its natural beauty. And in countries where I used to live in, when there is no private property, usually the worst people are the ones who take over this kind of fun. Precisely things. correct. Precisely correct. Oh, we have terrible forest mismanagement in this country because so many of our forests are owned by our federal government. And the environmentalists don't see fires, lightning would strike and natural fires would come through and clear certain areas. That's part of the natural cycle. But our environmentalists in love with the status quo of nature, believing it is some kind of religious, you know, sacrosanct thing, have prevented clear cutting because they don't want, first, they don't want uh, uh, for, uh, you know, companies that harvest wood to make profit. But what they're doing is putting out fires left and right, which is what humans are doing. So the thick overgrowth creates uh, this poor, uh, poor forest management, which creates uh, wildfires now that run out of control. Um, that's the result of public management of our forests. Now, we're running out of time, James, but I wanted to talk a bit more about what these policy policies have cost uh, uh, in Europe, particularly over the last uh, months that gas prices have been soaring and therefore it has become more difficult uh, to uh, fight Russia because they're the only provider of, of gas at the moment. Could you comment a bit on that? There are going to be negative effects to any of these evil environmentalist laws that try to stop <laughs> the production of energy. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not as though oil companies are free from liability should anything happen. Just, uh, you know, just ask those oil or British Petroleum when that uh, oil spill happened, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico a few years back. They could lose altogether. It's really only government coming in to save them that even protects them when, when terrible things like that happen. Um, so uh, I think they've actually, uh, you, you can't, the list can't be predicted. You can't, for example, when the war on fossil fuels began some decades ago, and I live in a state, California, that has absurd emissions requirements uh, that make it very expensive for automakers and petrol uh, uh, producers uh, to do their work and increases the costs dramatically. And if you cut off uh, oil production and the increases in 
development in energy technology as such, when you start restricting that, it's going to be hard to predict all the disastrous impacts of that. Uh, one of the ones that could have been predicted, it seems to me, uh, as a sort of a no-brainer, is that Russia basically lives off its natural resources, lives off this petroleum. It is not a high-tech, you know, advanced Western, <laughs> Western uh, uh, economy. It needs that. And as the West is not producing, if America had become energy independent, a net oil exporter uh, under the under the last administration, which I'm not a big fan of, but under the last administration, and when Biden came in, he ended that. He simply ended that. Now he's out, you know, holding hat in hand to Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Iran, some of the worst governments in the world. We have to go a begging to to produce their increase their. Oh, uh, their production so we can make up for Russia. But look what happened. Germany is totally dependent on Russian oil. It makes it impossible. So what do we end up doing? The West ends up giving billions of dollars to Russia to subsidize this horrible war of aggression. That's the one of the effects. And I, it's hard to predict, as I say, what all the effects are going to be. There are going to be life-killing, life-destroying effects that cannot be predicted when you destroy, when you restrict the mind and restrict technology. It's inevitable. Thank you very much, James. So, um, as a, the parting words, um, what would you say about to the people who are the key victims of the ecologists? It is the young and the ambitious, as Ayn Rand points out, those who still have a future, <laughs> looking forward to a brighter future ahead of them, that are the most threatened by it, that are most threatened by it, and understand that the quality of your life your ability to enjoy your life, your ability to do creative work, your ability to find fulfillment and family and romance and love as Ayn Rand so vividly depicts here, much less the material uh, well-being, the amount of food you have, the quality of the entertainment you have, the safety you have, the physical safety you have, the health benefits you have, all of that depends upon the human mind. And when someone says humanity is the bad guy as such. When somebody says technology is bad as such, when somebody says, as Ayn Rand says, leave well enough alone, we don't need to explore improving life in X or Y, Z area. They are the killers. They are the ones sending us back to that dark age that Ayn Rand predicted they were sending us to back in Atlas Shrugged. You know, even when, as I say, when Ayn Rand wrote this article in 1970, people were still saying, oh, Miss Rand, you're exaggerating. These people aren't anti-civilization. They're not, they're not calling for an end of civilization as such. They are. They are. And they, it, it, it is our innocence, our Dagny Taggart-like innocence that pr prevents us from seeing that they hate the good for being the good. They do not love humanity. Humanity is their enemy, and in particular, it is a single feature of humans that they're dead set against, the rational mind. Don't, don't gloss over that. Take them at their word. They mean it. They will send us back to a worse than the Dark Ages, to the Pleistocene era. That's their goal. Thank you for those powerful words, James. Um, we have a last minute, minute super chat. Uh, um, so Jeff, uh, thank you very much for the for the comments. He's, he says, "Here's the job. He, here is to the job you do, Alejandro, piloting the discussion of these essays. Maybe your emoticon will be next." And thanks, James. 
I think you, you know, you, you actually, you know, anytime could people compare our faces, they can see that you would make a much better emoji. I'm sure one that would sell more subscriptions. But I have to echo that. Alejandro, your questions are always outstanding and always lead us into a wonderful discussion here. Thank you very much. I agree. Thank you very much, James. And actually, I have one question, if I may. Um, sure. One last question that I wasn't sure how to... Um, put it into the discussion today, but I, but I send it over to you uh, before. And that is, uh, Rand talks about uh, the collapse of civilizations because knowledge is uh, banned, like knowledge goes away from people's minds. Could you give us your view of this as a historian? Well, that is true. Civilizations don't just peter out or become a little less or, no, it's generally a collapse. When something like this happens, it's a collapse. Look at the collapse of classical civilization, you know, 1,500 years ago, when Greco-Roman civilization died. I mean, take the population of Rome. Rome had the first city with, uh, with a population of more than a million people until London in around 1800 in the Industrial Revolution. Really, it took until London in the Industrial Revolution before we had cities again with a million people. Rome had that uh, 2,000 years ago. When Rome fell, the population diminished by about three quarters in less than a century. Civilizations collapse. And that's not the only example we have. In Mesoamerica, the Olmec civilization, in the end of the Bronze Age, civilization ended 3,000 years ago, ending literacy and entering into an illiterate Dark Age uh, in the beginning of the Iron Age, 3,000 years ago. Dark Ages happen. Civilizations collapse, and they collapse utterly. Civilization is fragile, is fragile. And Ayn Rand is absolutely correct. Anybody's review of history will tell you what could happen. In fact, when certain uh, totalitarian governments took over just in the last hundred years, the backward lurch that they took their countries uh, on was noteworthy. And absent subsidization from the West or a freer West uh, trading and providing technology with them, they would have completely gone back to a dark age. So no, Ayn Rand is exactly correct. Ayn Rand was a keen student of history, and she's exactly correct on this. If history teaches us anything, you, you don't uh, uh, restrict technology, you destroy civilization and it collapses. Thank you very much for the indulgence of the question, James. Sure, and, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, also for your warm comments before that. I, I didn't thank you. Um, thank you. So another wonderful discussion and i hope to see you next tuesday yes take care